Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. As always, we have a lot to get to. Um, but I have some uh, personal and emotional news. I've just learned today that John Kiriakou is one of those uh, soccer. It's so boring. They're just so going up boring. and down the field, people. And I don't know how back I can go on. Forth and back and oh, forth. my God. I just gosh. don't understand it. Oh, they're so low scoring. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, sometimes you learn things about people. <laughs> 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 they really upset you. I have developed a, a love of snooker. I will say that. Okay, that doesn't make it better. <laughs> I don't know how snooker works. It's a, that's the no billiards is with the red balls and the white balls. Right, and snooker is you have to hit the balls in a certain order. Oh, based right. on their color. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, just wanted. I just wanted none of you listening out there to have any uh, illusions. <laughs> About John Kiriakou when he talks about the World Cup, he's talking about a sport that he doesn't like or care I, I about. I don't. I don't have any understanding of it. Yeah, you it gotta, just seems so incredibly boring. You got to widen your aperture. That's yeah. what it is. Anyway, all right, we have we have real news to get to. Um, we are going to be talking about a scary new espionage law yeah. in Sweden. It uh, looks suspiciously like the UK's Official Secrets Act. Yeah, which is a nasty piece of work. Sure is. Uh, it also elevates. So it used to be that espionage in Sweden was uh, criminalized if it did direct harm to state security. Correct. Now it just has to damage Sweden's relationships. Right. With other countries and international entities. And I mean, that's extremely dangerous. That's language that can be really broad. Yeah. So we are going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what it's going to do to, to journalism. What, what if you have to say a negative thing about NATO? And it would make NATO feel a little angry with Sweden and your right. pesky reporters. What is that? And you what know, does that do? You going to go to jail for that? And it seems like you'd have to be a pretty important or pretty well-known person where an utterance of yours actually does damage to the country's foreign policy, right? Yeah. But what if it's somebody like you or me, where we just, you know, we tweet something like, oh, I don't like Finland. Uh, fin Finnish people are dirty, mm -hmm. right? Well, is that damaging Swedish relationships here, with Finland? <laughs> yeah, no. No, but like, what if what you get, you get your hands on information that yeah. would suggest that, you know, this is what, this is what Sweden's high officials are saying. That, right. oh, you can't report that. Exactly. Because it's going to damage Very your relationship. Dangerous. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible new law. So we'll talk uh, to someone who has been looking at that law pretty intensively. Um, we are going to take a look at what's happening in Europe. We have Russia threatening more gas cuts. It is accusing Ukraine of stealing gas from the pipelines that carry Russian gas through Ukraine. Um, I am, you know, one of the things that I'm curious about with the sort of energy black market that is inevitably springing up now is right. you know, we, we've talked about the implications in terms of increased violence of our flow of weapons that's yes. going to Ukraine, that's going to, you know, uh, stream out of the country and reach other hands. But right. black markets are also, you know, black markets bring with them violence, right? People Absolutely. have to protect these. If you, if you can't go to the law to protect your business, what yeah. other, what other option do you have? And so I think maybe we're also ignoring the potential for for violence that is to protect these energy markets that I are in right. high dollar. I think oh. you're right. And and there's another issue here, too. I gave an interview to RT last night. And they had a very good question that they wanted to to talk about. And it was um, the United States has admitted 
that it has no control of the weapons that it sends to Ukraine once the weapons land in Ukraine. And there are credible reports saying that a lot of the guns and the ammunition are going to organized crime gangs, that American weapons are turning up in places like Bulgaria and Romania when mafia figures are being arrested there. These are military-grade weapons that were meant for the Ukrainian military. You know, what's the United States going to do about it? And I said, they're not going to do anything about it because the same thing happens every single time there's an armed conflict and the United States provides weapons. Go to Peshawar, Pakistan. I've been to the market, the arms market in Peshawar, Pakistan. Everything is American. Yeah. Everything. So I said, they're not going to do anything. They're sale just is a sale. Keep, exactly. They're just going to keep pumping weapons and ammunition into these war zones. Yeah. So we're, we are going to talk about that. We're going to take a, a new look at uh, Ron DeSantis' time at Gitmo. Yes. Uh, which I'm pretty interested in because yes. I don't know anything about this. So I get to come into this one cold and just hear what our guest has to say. Uh, we are going to take a look at human trafficking, not uh, just to build the World Cup complex, uh, but also to keep overseas U.S. military bases running. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about the the web of foreign labor that, that keeps those bases operating and the way some of those people are treated by American contractors that are making a lot of money. That's right. Uh, taxpayer money. Yes. From the Defense Department. It's not an accident that everybody gets rich when there's a war. Yeah. No, it's not. Uh, we are going to try to figure out what can get you banned from Twitter these days. We are going to ask how many people Saudi Arabia has beheaded in the last month. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about some coming showdowns in Congress, both within parties and between our two main parties. And uh, we're going to talk about whether license plates are going to be the, the final trigger for a new conflict in the Balkans. Was, I mean, the, was there not the a eruption war? of an old conflict yeah. in the Balkans. Was there not a war one time in the 70s between Guatemala and Honduras over a bad call in a soccer match? I don't know. I'm going to look it up. Please because, do. Yeah, that would I be think that actually funny. happened. You never know. I mean, this this war could very well be triggered by the issuance of license plates. Yeah. As crazy as it sounds. Yeah. People are or people ready to lay down to, uh, to give up their license plates, yeah, and you know, right. oh, or do we have, you know, do, do we have equal rules on license plates? Or uh, yeah, right. I mean, and honestly, this is the, the so the the leaders of Serbia and Kosovo got together with the EU High Representative for Security and Foreign yes. Relations to try and reach a deal. And uh, the latest one is that Serbia said, okay, we 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 can accept this. Yes, Kosovo said no. Partly because the deal, according to the the Kosovo leader, the deal only addressed license plates. And he said that this is obviously about more. So it is this deal would address that problem. But, uh, you know, what what are we doing here? Really? Yeah. So we'll see just how serious that that could possibly get. Um, other interesting news to get to. Uh, so yesterday, according to multiple reports, the AP fired reporter James Laporta over his role in their incorrect story that had to be retracted that a senior U.S. intelligence official said the explosion in Poland that killed two people last week was the result of a Russian missile. AP uh, would not confirm that Laporta was the person fired, but they did issue a statement saying uh, the rigorous editorial standards and practices of the Associated Press are critical to AP's mission as an independent news organization. We abide by these standards, including the use of anonymous sources. When our standards are violated, we must take the steps necessary to protect the integrity of the news report. We don't make these decisions lightly, nor are they based on isolated incidents. 
And that's the line that might that's the key right open there. a new can of worms. I mean, the thing is, is this just boilerplate, right? Mm-hmm. right. Who knows, right? It, it, you could also equally say, like, they just dashed this off and they're, they, they, you know, they're sort of covering their own behinds as well. Yes. Um, but also that could suggest that AP has had issues with this guy's reporting or his sourcing in the past. Yes. Um, the, the writer is a former U.S. Marine. He served in Afghanistan. He joined AP uh, a couple years ago. He covers military affairs and national security. Um, the Washington Post said they have seen a bunch of internal AP communications that that led up to the story alert. And there was just one, there was one aspect of it that I thought was a little bit funny. They show him saying, like, here's my tip. And editor is immediately going, can we run with this or do we need confirmation fr- from somewhere else? Uh, and there is one editor who said she voted for publishing the alert based on that one source uh, because... I can't imagine a U.S. intelligence official would be wrong on this. I just might suggest that maybe there are more. Maybe there are more questions to ask than whether they are going to be right or wrong on that call. You know what I mean, John? Or am I? Is that is that crazy? Um, so yeah. It, it, also, the post sort of suggests that Laporte uh, Laporta sort of gave the impression that his source had been vetted already to editors, and so there's not going to be any action against them. It seems, but yeah. So, you know, for for publishing what could have been a very dangerous story, uh, someone has been fired. You know, I know that this is a separate issue, but it's kind of a parallel issue. Uh, there was there was an AP report last week that um, that Foreign Minister Lavrov was hospitalized. And then it turned out to be completely untrue. And Lavrov, to his credit, released. I don't know if you saw the photo that he released of himself. Him, like lying on a beach. No, it, well, he was on his patio. And he was wearing a, a Jean-Michel Basquiat t-shirt, which was awesome. And, um, and he was wearing like a baseball cap, like an American baseball cap or something like that. Anyway, it was fantastic. The, the point is that he wasn't hospitalized. He had not been hospitalized. The um, Associated Press said that they had confirmed that he had been hospitalized and then refused to say, well, where, where they got their information mm-hmm. from. The information was clearly false. So, and then they never retracted the, uh, the story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <coughs> um, yeah, FTX also, it's, it's the first day of FTX's uh, bankruptcy hearings in court, which I suspect is going to result in like a, a steady stream of information. Mm-hmm. The, the first piece of which seems to be that FTX's lawyer saying substantial amounts of assets were either, are either stolen, like they know they're stolen, or are missing. Uh, which is is pretty interesting. And oh, with the Golden State Warriors, so not just Steph Curry, but the Warriors themselves are being sued over false advertising for FTX. Wow. This is this Wow, this is getting big. Is just going to keep growing. I find this very See, And Larry David comes out smelling like a rose. Do you remember the football ad? Yeah, but I mean he was still doing an ad <laughs> know, for cryptocurrency. I'm joking. Yeah. But he was yeah. the only one that was whose role in the commercial was to say he doubted this. Hey, um our, our uh, producer, Ben, just uh, sent us a, a piece saying that Ukrainian security forces have raided the country's main Orthodox Christian monastery in Kiev. Boy, that makes me mad. They're attempting to intimidate the Orthodox faithful, the patriarch spokesman said. Boy, that makes me mad. Oh, no, John. <laughs> I'm sorry. Got to leave churches and religions out of this. Both sides are Orthodox. Boy, gee, oh, no, oh, poor John, John growling over we here. Got, we yeah. got to get Jim Jatras on. 
how to, to really put the fear yeah. of God in, yeah, in yeah, all of yeah. us. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, worth noting, I don't really expect to hear anything from this today, but the Oath Keepers trial has gone to a jury. They mm -hmm. began deliberating today after two months of listening to evidence. So uh, I don't, I mean, I imagine it's going to be uh, complicated and they're going to take a while to deliberate, but who knows? We could see there. Who knows? It, DC jury. Yeah, it's five individuals. Yep. Uh, they have all pleaded not guilty. Uh, the most serious charges could get them up to 20 years in federal prison. I guess those would be the seditious conspiracy. Yes. So we'll be watching for that. Yeah, that's going to be that's going to be a big deal, too. And, uh, you know, so far, the track record of these January 6th uh, defendants in D.C. with D.C. <laughs> juries has not been good. Yeah. Not yeah. been good. The other thing that I'm I'm watching and I hope to get into a little bit more tomorrow is just what how Europe is attempting to manage uh, migration. Right. We yeah. talked before about the you know, Italy was refusing to let to let these um, NGO boats that had rescued migrants from their own dilapidated ships. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, their, their process is to bring them to the nearest port, which yes. is often Italy. Yes. Uh, sometimes Greece. Uh, eventually, one boat that was being refused uh, access to the Italian port went to France instead. France got kind of mad about that. And so now, as a result of this sort of standoff, the European Commission is trying again to create guidelines for these boats that are rescuing migrants off, off the coast. Um, it, it, it's not anything new, right? I mean, a lot of the, the issue is getting these states to enforce laws and regulations that they already have. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it is true that th this is not a this is not something that's going away. That's right. Uh, these documents that were presented in Brussels mention that more than uh, 90,000 migrants of refugees have arrived in the central Mediterranean region so far in 2022. That's an increase of 50 percent compared to the year before. Amazing. They are mostly departing from Libya and Tunisia. They are originating from Egypt, Tunisia, and Bangladesh. And a lot of them don't automatically qualify That's right. as refugees or asylum seekers, right? They're yeah. coming because... The but, economies are bad. Yeah. They need to feed their families. Yep. Yeah. And so the EU is trying to figure out, you know, what, what, they, are, what they are going to do, trying to figure out, uh, are they going to, in fact, implement uh, plans that I believe already exist where you are supposed to... You know, if, if you just happen to be the country that's closest to this boat, mm -hmm. it's not supposed to be your responsibility to care for everyone who comes to your shores. There are that's supposed right. to be plans to voluntarily resettle migrants yes. who are allowed to stay in the EU in different places yes. in the EU. There are plans that, that have been negotiated, you know, years ago. Yeah. They're also looking into, uh, uh, you know, do, doing what the U.S. does uh, more um, efficiently returning migrants to Africa and, and Asia. Uh, but I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't know that there is a solution to this that doesn't involve radically changing our, our political and economic relationship with, the, right. with the countries of origin that these people are coming from and the regions that they're coming from. And none yes. of that seems to ever be part of this. So it's either, you know, how can we, how can we absorb more immigrants, which is fine, or how can we uh, more thoroughly and viciously police our borders and throw people out? Which is, to me, not not a response to a situation that you've had a hand in creating. Yes. So we'll keep watching that story. Um, I think we've got our next guest on the line. I think we, we do indeed. Go.
We'll take a little break here. We've got more to tell you, but that can wait till later in the show. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. A war is brewing between Republicans in the Senate over whether or not to support a continuing resolution that would keep the government running after December 16th. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said that he would engage in talks with the Biden administration to fund the government before it runs out of money and is forced to shut down, something that happens every few years and always always hurts Republicans. But Senator Rick Scott of Florida, who is emerging as the most vocal challenger to McConnell's leadership, said that he would strongly oppose a continuing resolution, shut the government down, and wait for Republicans to take over the House on January the 3rd. Republicans could then work to zero out or reduce budget programs that they don't like, like aid to Ukraine. Scott and other conservatives also have said that they want to raise the retirement age for Social Security and Medicare. That's going to be a fight. Mm -hmm. The New York Times says today that American jails and prisons are in a state of crisis with poor medical care, abuse and mental illness leading to the untimely deaths of prisoners across the country. This is happening at every level of detention. That's county jails, state prisons and federal prisons, and nobody is doing anything to improve the situation. Alabama Governor Kay Ivey last night announced a pause in carrying out the state's death penalty after an unsuccessful execution on Thursday night. Kenneth Eugene Smith didn't die because prison officials couldn't find a vein in which to insert the IV chemicals. But Ivey doesn't blame herself, the state, or the executioners. She blames unnamed progressives whom she accuses of using legal tactics to hijack the system, whatever that means. And Starbucks announced that it will close as many as 1,000 stores in the coming months, not because they're unprofitable, but because they're in the process of unionizing. The move is almost certainly illegal and will have to be settled in court. We're joined by Kevin Gastala. Kevin's a journalist and writer for Shatterproof.com and co-host of the podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. Welcome back, Kevin. Hey, it's good to be speaking to both of you. Uh, uh, John's got a whole bunch of domestic politics stories for you, but I wanted to start in Sweden and then come back to the United States because I know you have been writing about Sweden's new espionage law, which which easily passed its second vote in the country's parliament. Uh, The existing law only criminalized obtaining, disclosing or passing to another state information that would directly harm Sweden's national security. The new law lowers that threshold to damaging relations with another country or international organization, which has obvious implications for journalism. And and Sweden is indeed, as I read, going to have to change its legislation on freedom of the press and freedom of expression. Uh, Sweden's prime minister said, no, 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 no. This is not about journalism. This is only about punishing people who share this information with an express will to hurt our interests, which is uh, also too fuzzy, I think, to be a very much comfort. He also said 
that the law is being enacted to bring Swedish law in line with that of their other partners, uh, which I am very curious about. So I, I wondered if you could talk to us about what Sweden has done with this new espionage law and how it could affect journalism. Well, to me, when I look at this, it looks a lot like how the Justice Department has prosecuted espionage by going after leakers and going after people who are whistleblowers. And then now we see the case against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Um, it just looks to me that if they can say that Sweden's relationship with, uh, let's say, the United States has been damaged, or let's say if somehow information was revealed that hurts their standing in NATO, that now uh, they would have a, a, a way to bring somebody to trial and prosecute them for for doing that, for bringing them under scrutiny. I'm just thinking of the things that we heard, particularly when the quarter of a million U.S. state embassy cables were being reported on and covered and shared in 2010 and 2011 by WikiLeaks and all these other partnering organizations. And, you know, the concern for the U.S. government was that it was going to make it difficult for them to have diplomacy, to have these secret conversations and pursue the sort of corrupt dealings that were being exposed. And now it just seems like that's what the Swedish government is trying to do that they don't. They, and I also think that there is the war in Ukraine. And I, I mentioned that in my article and I, I use that context because I think that that has a lot to do with it, too, that when they're saying they have to do this for other uh, to, to bring their laws in line with other countries. I don't really know if that's true, but what I think they're trying to say is that they want to tighten things up <laughs> and show that they're a team player and that they're going to enforce consent for this uh, European involvement in a war in Ukraine that, you know, we don't know when that's going to end. There's no end inside. We don't know what the goals are. We don't know what the resolution might be. Um, and so, um, you know, as far as like when peace negotiations would be acceptable to Europe and the United States, we don't know when they would be trying to force Ukraine to the table. Uh, so that is something that we know is there's there's fatigue in Europe over this. And I think one way to enforce it and make sure that whistleblowers or journalists didn't blow up whatever plans you had for the conflict that uh, you could have an espionage law like this. You could expand espionage law. But then I also mentioned that. We've got the example of Edward Snowden and how there were publications that showed the close relationship between U.S. intelligence and Swedish intelligence. And that was, you know, something that I think undermined uh, the uh, relations that made people question whether the United States could keep that information secret. Certainly, if something like that were to come out from the Swedish side um, in the Swedish press and people were to question how closely they were working with the United States, then that would be something that Swedish's government would be, Sweden's government would want to be able to uh, go against people. And I mean, Sweden right now is involved in an investigation of one of the most uh, mysterious aspects of this conflict, which is the explosion of the Nord Stream pipeline. And people have been pointing out, you know, you know, yeah, the information Information about the wrong person, the wrong country being involved in that could certainly be seen 
as damaging Sweden's relationship with the United States and NATO. And uh, now you might face jail time if you happen to report some inconvenient information that you come across or that somebody gives you. Yeah, to me, it's just all about information control. I don't know that we I mean, they might be playing a little bit. Well, there's a little bit of like uh, sleight of hand kind of when they're like, oh, it's not about journalism. Well, you know, you're right. It's about you controlling information. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why we have uh, a Justice Department in the United States that pursues prosecutions in the way that they do, the way that they obstruct the Freedom of Information Act and uh, and and make sure requests don't go through and why the CIA has Glomar in court so that they don't have yes. to confirm or deny certain aspects of things, even though it may relate to abuses of human rights like torture. Uh, so obviously, from my sense of following all of these issues over the last decade, what I see here is a country that does not have um, the kind of power that the United Kingdom has, does not have the power of, um, you know, maybe some of the other st states that could independently act. But it's more likely that somewhere behind the scenes, you know, it's been advised by the United States as a driver of NATO policy that this is something that they need in order to protect the war effort from any kind of disunity in the message around what is being pursued against Russia. And that's, you know, I'm just, my feeling for that, why I think that is true, has to do with history. I just go back to why the U.S. adopted an Espionage Act back in 1917. That was about World War One, And the, I, I can see the U.S. lobbying other countries today to shore up their espionage laws to make sure that they control the spread of information. Oh, yeah. I think this is going to get worse before it gets better in countries all over the world. You know, the, the U.K. is bad enough. Now Sweden is mirroring what the U.K. has. I, I can't help but to think that we're that we're close behind. I want to ask you about passage of a continuing resolution or CR, Kevin. Uh, Congress has to pass a CR to keep the government running after December 16th. Without a continuing resolution, everything shuts down. There aren't going to be any social security checks. There aren't going to be any any welfare checks or food stamps. Medicare, uh, Medicaid will will cease to be funding for it. Will cease to be transferred to the states. Overseas embassies will close. No consular services. No American citizen services. It's a big deal. Mitch McConnell has said that he's willing to pass a continuing resolution. He's done it dozens of times over the years. But Rick Scott, Ted Cruz, and Mike Lee of Utah want to engage in some brinkmanship. They want to block funding unless the Biden administration agrees to add money to fund the Trump border wall, which I thought Mexico was paying for, uh -huh. right? December 16th is only a little more than three weeks away. Do you think Mitch McConnell can get his caucus in order in the meantime? Or do you think the government's going to shut down? Yeah, uh, we always see this in the news cycle yep. that is the government going to be shut down or are they going to fund it? And it always happens that in an 11th and the 11th hour, uh, usually Bernie Sanders is on the floor giving some speech about why he, you know, he's going to have to vote for this package, but he doesn't want to because there's something terrible in right. it. But uh, they've given him time to do, you know, the fake filibuster. 
uh, or some other Democratic senators on the floor saying they don't like it, but they came up with this package deal. Yeah, I imagine there will be some kind of poison pill in there that progressives really don't want. Do I is it going to be border wall? I don't know. I mean, it's a little bit odd to me that like that would be the thing that they're going for. Of all but things. I, but I think that maybe the Republicans are desperate. Um, I haven't talked to you since Election Day, and mm-hmm. I sat here and talked to you uh, several weeks ago, and I was really skeptical of the idea that uh, the red wave wasn't going to be met with some kind of blue wall yep. um, just because – uh, well, I'll, I'll I'll tell you why. I, I actually believed that Michael Moore had his pulse on America, just the same yes. way that he had his pulse on America. I remember you with, mentioning it with with Donald Trump, and uh, so I think that this might be a desperate attempt by Republicans to come up with what the issue is going to be that animates the grassroots after they 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 lost like a majority of their races where they were boosting election deniers, um, and they lost a lot of races where, uh, well, they, I don't know that they lost races, but it didn't quite pay off to do the crime panic, uh, thing. Um, it only worked in, uh, districts or races where the Democrats took the bait and decided to try and prove that they were better cops than Republicans. And so in my view, this could be a desperate attempt on senators to try to find that thing that's going to resonate with the base. But, you know, I look at right wing media and they're just not really talking about immigrants in the U.S. right now. A lot of the stuff that they talk about in if, if they're concerned about culture war issues is sadly of the LGBTQ plus variety um, and, and suggesting about like different things of how that's destroying the fabric of America. So it's it's kind of odd to have a throwback and go back to the days of Trump and push for a border wall. Totally agree. The New York Times story today on prisons and jails is chilling, but it's not something that we've never heard. And it's certainly something not something that we haven't talked about on this show. It begins with the story of a 28-year-old man who turned himself in after having been arrested for a DUI. He was diabetic, and he brought his insulin with him to the jail. So they locked him up, and they refused to give him his insulin. He kept saying, hey, I have to have the insulin four times a day and they wouldn't give it to him. Three days later, they found him dead on the floor of his cell after having gone into a diabetic coma. Things like this happen every single day in America. We've been talking about it for years. Uh, Paul Wright at the Human Rights Defense Center has been talking about it for decades. So why is it that we can't fix this problem? Why is this problem apparently just getting worse and worse and worse as time passes? Well, first off, I would say to you that uh, we shouldn't move too far away from what happens when we have a chance to elect people who will think about these issues Mm. dramatically Mm -hmm. differently. The pressure from the media is to go towards protecting the different carceral or incarceration policies that are uh, available. And what gets pressured when we are having elections Oh, bail reform is causing the disintegration of our country. Or is it or is it not? We don't know. Some people believe it, so we're going to take it seriously, even if it isn't true. That's what the New York Times did. Yeah. I mean, they very, they very like clearly played into the Republicans' plans, even if the Republicans weren't able to win their elections. And they just said, well, 
Republicans have made people afraid. People are afraid. So we have to cover the fear. Yeah. So we'll report on the fear among the people, even though it isn't reasonable at all, which is not how you uh, handle a panic. I mean, that's not how they handled people's fears about COVID vaccines. They don't reinforce it by going, well, people are afraid. People are right. afraid. That's all. what can we say? Uh, but they do that for crime, even when there is empirical evidence that the crime rates are much lower and getting better and that there isn't a reason for this abuse that we see. And the other thing I want to quickly point out is that this permanent subcommittee that John Ossoff chairs as senator recently did an investigation and found that the Justice Department had undercounted deaths by a thousand over the last uh, decade, that they're not appropriately um, uh, responsible for the people who are in their custody. And I think, you know, while these are, you know, these are county jails, we're talking about these are not necessarily federal jails, but nationwide, all of these institutions care so little about life that they don't even know the number of people that are dying or uh, sustaining life-threatening injuries or illnesses in their institutions on an annual basis. Yeah. That's absolutely true. It is just, uh, to me, it's shocking that, yeah, it does make me sick, but it's also like, it's not, I just don't know why this isn't, it isn't more part of mainstream conversation. You know what I mean? I I don't understand. It really does boggle the mind, right? Because the solution, the the common sense solution is always presented as pour more money directly into this system, basically unchanged. Right. And it's just not, it's not that complicated. And I understand why. Uh, you know, the, the direction that police and police organizations want to want to drive the conversation. But I really don't understand the consistent failure of our mainstream media to cover this accurately and comprehensively. It's not even particularly political. You know no, what I mean? No, like, no. sure, it's, it's like, no, OK, it's I get why, human you know, dignity. the New York Times isn't like a bastion of anti-imperialism. But yeah. this is this is it less defensible, I, I feel. I, I don't know if either of you have a, an answer to that. I, I don't well, know. If I just could quick go, well, I just want to quickly nitpick something because mm-hmm. it says in the story that jails have also in many cases violated minimum safety standards or failed to provide adequate medical and mental health care for their inmates. You know, they And they point this out after um, mentioning why jail officials justify this. And they say there's crowding, there's staff shortages, there's mental health issues, uh, they uh, have had to deal with the pandemic, there's isolated violent detainees that they have to worry about, there might be uh, other things they have to do to quarantine, quarantine people with illnesses. And then they say, but... But by and large, jails have also, in many cases, violated minimum safety standards or failed to provide adequate medical and mental health care. Actually, it's not many cases. It's not in many cases. It's in all cases. Mm-hmm. In all cases. Like, it would be an exception to the rule if you went to prison and got the medical and mental health care that you deserve. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. I want to ask you a follow-up on this. Another major point in this article was to say that our mental health policies nationally have failed and that more than half of the deaths, more than half of the deaths in prisons and jails across the country are of mentally ill people who belonged in hospitals rather than in jails. But our mental health facilities are ill-equipped or unequipped to, uh, to care for them because there just aren't any available beds. We've been having this debate 
about the mentally ill in prisons since the 70s. Why do you think we haven't solved the problem when other countries have? You know, you go to, to Western Europe and they don't have these problems with mentally ill people just dying randomly in, in jail. Well, I believe it's actual lack of compassion among mm-hmm. people in our culture. Uh, so let's just go out west, okay? So, like, what just happened? They had a mayoral election between Rick Caruso and Karen Bass. And one of the defining issues between the two was what they were going to do with homeless people, homeless individuals, how they were going to deal with them. And the billionaire who spent over $100 million of his own wealth and lost, which I think is fantastic. I'm so glad that he just wasn't able to succeed. But one of the things was that he was going to clean up the streets. (laughs) And there were actual boutique liberals who were more inclined to support Rick Caruso over Karen Bass because they are tired of the homelessness problem in L.A. But the point I'm trying to make is that if you ask those people what they want to do, they don't really want to show compassion and try and deal with the root causes of the mental health crisis. If you ask them what their quick solution is, well, I just I just think we should warehouse them. Just like go put them somewhere. I don't want them on the streets. I don't want to see them when I go to work in the morning. Just just I mean, maybe they don't need to go to jail, but just put them somewhere. Yeah. Well, if you put them somewhere, it's going to be like a jail. I mean, they won't yeah. be there because they're criminals, but they're going to be kept in squalid conditions, probably like migrant workers in Qatar who worked on the FIFA stadiums. Yeah. So yeah. like what what exactly do you want to do? And I think what it comes down to is people don't really care about these people. They want to push them aside and, you know, maybe they don't want to put them in jails and put them through this and treat them like, you know, the reason why they're poor is their own fault but they at least want to keep them out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Let's talk for a minute about this execution that went bad in Alabama on Thursday night. It's the third time that Alabama has botched an execution in the past four years. Governor Kay Ivey is blaming progressives for trying to block or, in her words, trying to sabotage executions. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, it's hard Lunatic. to take KIV yeah. uh, all that all that seriously and not um see her as just completely unhinged and and nutty. I mean, she's saying that legal tactics and criminals are hijacking the system. And that's the reason why they're having problems with these injections even though we know that we've 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 dealt with these cases. We know that the like this isn't the first cycle of 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 seeing a state government struggle with their lethal injections to um, to to execute people without torturing them while they are being executed, and so because this was a big problem in Oklahoma, and uh, as I understand it, they're trying to construct a gas chamber for oh, their grief. people to execute people in Alabama so that they no longer have to deal with um, the bleeding heart liberal lawyers who are trying to save people from execution. Um, And the other thing is, again, she says, for the sake of the victims and their families, we've got to get this right. And and it must be said that that is one of the biggest prevailing myths around the death penalty, that victims and their families, or victims' families, because usually the victim would have been murdered and killed, um, that the family of the people want that person to be executed because that's going to resolve everything that they want an right. eye for an eye. It's no, it's it's not always true, and actually, more often, they 
um, would be content with that person just living the rest of their life in prison. Oh, it yeah. does not res- it doesn't resolve their issues to execute them, especially when um, there are all kinds of overhanging issues with the system as as far as appeals um, and whether even the evidence was appropriate, whether the law was followed to get them to the death penalty conviction, because there can be prosecutorial abuses. I think you're exactly right. I think what most what most proponents of the death penalty don't understand or don't appreciate is that life without parole is a far, far harsher punishment than than execution. Far wow. harsher. You're assuming we know what happens after you die. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> true too. Just joking. That's Who knows? Maybe it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you real quickly about uh, Starbucks. Starbucks seems to be violating labor laws quite clearly by firing employees who uh, are involved in union organizing and by closing stores that are trying to unionize. The federal government hasn't gotten involved yet, although there were rumblings last week that the National Labor Relations Board was going to get involved. And to the best of my knowledge, there's been no statement from the White House or even from the Department of Labor. Uh, Why do you think that is? It seems like Joe Biden would jump or should jump at the chance to support organized labor. What do you think is going on here? And do you think this will end up being decided in court? Uh, Yes. So the the regional offices for the National Labor Relations Board, from what I know, have been challenging these different stores that uh, Starbucks are uh, are shutting down just basically because they've decided to form a union. That's that's what you're describing there. Uh, Why? Why wouldn't Joe Biden uh, jump in to support these people? Right. Um, I, I, I don't I mean, he hasn't really done anything to support labor while he's been president other than to maybe pay them lip service here and there and talk about some of the pains of inflation. But uh, I mean, you know, as far as labor goes, uh, they're going to be trying to stop the rail union strike from happening and going forward. It'll be the Biden administration that tries to bust that and make sure it doesn't cause any further um, economic distress. Uh, and so I do expect a court to probably be involved at some point. I mean, I think it's possible that the NLRB could try and get a cease and desist order from Starbucks. But so far, whenever it seems like there's a chance to challenge corporate power, yeah. the Biden administration doesn't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get the same thing. I, I just don't understand why. I mean, Joe Biden. Well, because he's, he pro- promised nothing would fundamentally change when he campaigned. And, there, and, there and you know, these are yeah. the people who supported him. I mean, that's and part of is. the answer, right? But having grown up in a union household and been ostensibly a union supporter all of his life, uh, this just seems to be a gimme and he's just not taking it. Who yeah. knows? What do I know? Kevin Gastala, thanks for, for joining us. Kevin is a journalist and writer for Shadowproof.com and co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I am here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we're talking about the free speech uh, mecca that is Twitter, right? right? Uh, It's a free speech zone, people freely speaking all over the place, speaking too much, perhaps, you know, inciting violence, hate speech. It's just a free for all. And yet somehow our guest has uh, managed to get himself banned. We're joined by Garland Nixon. He's the co-host of The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Now, I had gone in. I thought this was a a I assumed this was a temporary suspension because your tweet is so obviously comic. But no, it seems like it is a permanent suspension there. So, Garland, uh, why don't you tell us what what did you do to get uh, to get Booted from the free speech free for all that is Twitter. Well, I'm I'm suspecting that it wasn't this tweet because the really tweet, uh, uh. they just like went dug in and like oh, okay here's a tweet from a couple of weeks ago uh. you're out of here. Uh-huh. Can you tell us what so they let me read the tweet? Yeah, and 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 you know it, to me I like to you know if it's if there's something wrong or ethical then there'll be a logical um. Uh, um, they'll, they'll, I'll put it like this. Well, let me just do this. Mm-hmm. I can change names and everything should so work the same, right? So let me read the tweet that I got permanently suspended for. And it says, again, I do a lot of uh, sarcasm, satire, parody, right? Sure. So yeah. <clears throat> I put at secretary, he was, uh, Tony Blinken was tweeting about something. God only knows what, something horrible, no doubt. So I tweeted at uh, secretary Blinken to-do list. So I made a little to-do list for him. Yeah, One, helpful. blow up Nord Stream pipeline. Two, overthrow Pakistani government. Three, try to rub out Imran Khan. Four, more money for Azov Nazis. No, that's three. Whatever. Four, (laughs) Istanbul go boom. They all know what that was. And five, I put personally strangle some Palestinians to death with your bare hand. I mean, it's it's not subtle. Let me do this, though. (laughs) Let me change this. Vladimir Putin to-do list. Uh, And let me change this for Four, personally strangle some Ukrainians to death with your bare hand. Do you think that gets me thrown off? No. Right. Yeah. There'll, there'll be NAFO people all over the place saying, yes, mm-hmm. that's Putin. He's evil. And we mm-hmm. all know uh, all the blue check marks will be, yeah, that's right. Vladimir Putin wants to personally strangle Ukrainians with his bare hand. So if this was actually what they claim it is, which is harassing or threatening, it wouldn't matter which name was in there. Yeah. It would always work the same. That's true. But we know that ain't the case. And the question is, why do you wait a week? But exactly. it's also... Or two. It's, it's obviously... It, it's obviously satirical, right? Yeah. Like, it's not subtle. And this is the thing. This has been a complaint across platforms by uh, especially independent media. They're not big name media, but, but independent media uh, who have said these content rules are making it so that we can't actually cover events where things like this happen. It happened a lot with um, uh, status quo, for example, trying to report on on far right rallies or whatever they're saying you keep catching us up in your content dragnet when we're not we're not espousing these views we're trying to cover events where these views are espoused and i thought when elon musk took over twitter there wasn't going to be any content moderation anymore certainly not of the sort of overtly political kind right because here's it's simple what are we looking at rule of law or in this instance admit we'll call it a law the laws of twitter right yeah. so we'll say rule of law rule of law versus arbitrary application of the law. Rule of law says no matter who it is, no matter what the name is, if you do X, 
this is what you're going to get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Arbitrary yeah. application says if you do X, depending upon who it is and what situation you're in, and you go against something the government doesn't warrant, eh, then you're going to get yeah. tossed. So yep. it's obvious what's going on here. I do suspect that there's more than meets the eye because they just grabbed the one, uh, uh, you know, a random. I've done work far worse than this. If anybody follows my Twitter account, <laughs> most days. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. You're provocative. Yes. Yes. It's satire. It's bad. What exactly. does Saturday Night Live do? But Saturday Night Live. Well, it's not always, satire, I will say. You know, but, you know, they do some of that parody and stuff, but it's always kind of, you know, going along with what the mainstream wants. But mm-hmm. I tell you, I'm suspicious. I'll tell you what I think it is. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'll throw this out there. I went on the Duran last week. I went on George Galloway and I put forth a um, theory. And I said, and it's been blowing up. People like sent me articles with my name in it from like the Europe, hmm. right? And here's what I said. I said, um, on the deindustrialization of Europe, Joe Biden, when he came in, said, I'm going to bring jobs and industry back. And everybody thought he was talking about China, but he wasn't because he can't do it because of the labor costs yes. the U.S. can't match. Yes. I said he was talking about Europe. Wow. So what he's did, that what they be. simply did was they create an environment where the energy costs are so high mm-hmm. that the European industry can't afford to stay there. And then they passed this thing called the Inflation Reduction Act. And if you read into it, the Inflation Reduction Act is basically the industry from Europe to America act. I mean, literally, they're like, yeah, if you're going to buy batteries or if you're going to sell batteries or if you're going to sell electric cars, they got to be made here. Uh, BMW Europe and uh, Volkswagen. France has been mad about that. Mm -hmm. So I went on and I went and basically kind of put it like, isn't it obvious? They're simply they want to compete with China. Mm -hmm. They need to reindustrialize. They're just going to take Europe's industry. Right. Well, I said that next thing you know, that blows up all over Twitter. Somebody's sending me an article from Europe. Garland Nixon said this. And I'm hearing Macron is screaming. They're stealing industry. And I'm thinking, I imagine that's not connected, but you're out of Twitter. Here's Tweet you made last week, and you are history, brother. Don't yeah. come back. Yeah, yeah exactly. Don't, exactly. Don't let the, uh, as my mother would say, don't let the doorknob hit you where the good Lord split you. Right. I mean, <laughs> right. It does say, you gonna, are you going to appeal? I mean, I'm, it seems like you ah, would have I a did. chance at appeal it if said, Twitter had any staff left. It said you can, I, I even took a screenshot. Yeah, it says you can appeal. It said you can appeal. I, appeal, I appealed, and when I clicked submit, it said, oops. Something went wrong. Oh, no. Are you kidding? And then right after that, at first it said you've been suspended. And right after that, I got something that said you're permanently suspended. Yeah. Wow. So, I don't know. Wow. That's but I do hardcore. Know this. I guarantee you that if you change the names and you put that Vladimir Putin is saying yes. he's going to personally strangle Ukrainians, there is no way. That gets boosted by Twitter. Oh, I mean, yes. that's explicit, right? I'm looking at a story in the Washington Post from March saying that you know, explicitly saying it starts with by saying a month ago, praising a neo-Nazi militia or calling for violence against Russians would get you suspended from Facebook. Now both are allowed in the context of the war between the two countries. It says specifically in Ukraine. But like they did, they said, oh, well, we're going to allow things that could be uh, explained away by uh, the he- the heat of the conflict, et cetera. I about that. <sighs> that, that was, it wasn't like, didn't they say they were going to allow you to say Call for violence <laughs> against Russians or something like that. Yeah, it's OK. It's, yeah. yeah. Arbitrary application of the rule. 
Well, or not arbitrary. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a yeah. well, inconsistent, point. inconsistent yeah. application, but not arbitrary, right? Could also have been, uh, yeah. And I'm going to go further where you're going. Not Please. only is it not arbitrary, it's not inconsistent. It's very consistent. Yes, exactly. Yeah. If, you're, if you're going along with what the machine wants, you're good. So, yeah. I mean, again, I've, I've been sort of facetious this whole time about the the uh, free speech maelstrom that was going to be unleashed by, by Elon Musk takeover. But it does seem, you know, like uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Right. It, not that any of us really expected anything no. else. But uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like this has become a safe space for, <laughs> for whoever. Well, it, 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 and, and right off the bat, when people are like, oh, hooray, this guy's coming in. He's their free speech savior. And you're like, he's still a billionaire the who's bought a private company. He's yeah. going to free us from our bondage. And uh, yeah, there's just something about that that leaves a bad taste in your mouth. You uh-huh. know? And well, doesn't he get like 60 or 70 percent of his money comes from like contract with the U.S. government? Oh, yeah. And- yeah. And a lot of that was government loans to both Tesla and SpaceX that the government later on said he didn't have to repay. Wow. Can we get some yeah. government loans like that? Seriously. Man in the world. That ain't right? a loan. They just hand you money. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. the only way. Well, I think yeah. we can get us thrown off Twitter. Exactly. Exactly. No, so it does seem like the kind of the worst of the predictions have come to pass, right? It does not seem as though there is a lot more political freedom. I mean, I do see that Marjorie Taylor Greene has been reinstated and Donald Trump, as yeah. we mentioned. But not Scott Ritter or it, Pepe Escobar. And yeah. it, Escobar, for God's sake. And it does seem uh, <laughs> that the things that people were afraid of, also the proliferation of, you know, like this hate speech and sort of vulnerable people being targeted. You know, we, we've already spoken about the upticks and use of uh, yeah. racial and other slurs on the platform. So kind of seems like the worst of both worlds right now. Yeah. And and you know what? To them, I think, to the ruling elite, the racial slurs and things like that are an inconvenience to them. Yeah, it's an inconvenience. Yeah. yeah, okay, that's a pain in the neck. Yeah. But people actually pushing back, you know, with good, strong policy positions. Yeah. And I've been really going after, you know, for months, the stuff, the, the business about the EU, the U.S., taking advantage of Europe, taking their industry, you know what I mean? Like calling them, you know, like fools and things like that for allowing this to happen. And I know they weren't people. So I just feel like it it wasn't a single tweet that it was. No. In general, I was going in a direction they didn't like. And same with Pepe. Look at Pepe Escobar. He, He writes excellent articles, very professional, international journalism. And I read the stuff. I'm like, man, he's a real sharp guy. And he has insider information. That's what got him thrown off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if he'd write some neoliberal trash that just said, hey, Russians are bad and stuff <laughs> like that, he'd be on there. Right. Mm-hmm. right. I also agree. I think it's very likely that this is, the, you know, this is not about a single tweet. They just they found one to object to. But it is also true that, you know, a lot of the things that we uh, are complaining about in the context of the conflict in Ukraine uh, this has been the case for for Palestinians for a very long time, right? If you are attempting to document human rights abuses of Palestinians, if you're attempting to just write about the fact of their existence at all, you are scrutinized. It is very clear that you are scrutinized a, a lot more heavily than anyone posting any other kind of content, yeah. right? And it could very easily have been just, you know, I mean, we have seen stories where Palestinian Palestine and Palestinian are flagged terms, yeah. right? Yes. In, in yeah. news organizations where anytime they come up, someone, is, an extra pair of eyes has to go and check and make sure you're not offending uh, anybody or uh, writing too clearly about the violence committed against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think yeah, you made a great good point 
and, and, and our discussion is accurate in that when the machine wants somebody off whatever, they can dig up a random tweet. And, 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 and if you'll notice, it's always something about hate speech or somebody else was telling me about that they got uh, uh, suspended for like hate speech and, or, or, you know, temporary suspension. And they'll say hate speech, threatening harassment. And when you ask them for something specific, okay, how did this tweet or whatever, they just never say anything. It's yeah. like they, they just don't use respond. Some, right. It's just that was the yeah. catch all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. It, when I was in law enforcement and like if the, a police department was after someone, they had something called Cubo. Conduct unbecoming of an officer. Yeah. So yeah, they give you like, you know, they didn't like this guy because he's causing, oh, well, he's guilty of conduct unbecoming of an officer. That's all it is. Yeah. It's conduct unbecoming of an It's a catch-all phrase. Yeah, you're threatening, harassing, whatever. You're out of here for two days or forever. Oh, yeah. and but in prison, they do that, too, with the word insubordination. Yeah. Ah. We got to get out of here. Uh, Garland Nixon, you're our colleague here. Remind our listeners where they can hear or when they can hear more of you on Critical Hour. Certainly not on Twitter, but 6 to 8 p.m. Monday through Fridays, Eastern Standard Time here. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Garland. (laughs) And go listen to the Critical Hour, everybody. We're going to take a quick break here and come back with way more (laughs) news on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. A few months ago, we told you about a potential conflict between Serbia and Kosovo over the issuance of license plates. Serbs living in Kosovo got their license plates from Serbia. That ends at the end of this month. The United Nations and the European Union have tried to mediate the dispute for months now, but that mediation has failed, and it looks like Serbia and Kosovo, as crazy as it sounds, are on the brink of war over license plates. The problem, of course, is deeper than license plates, and we'll get into some of the details in a moment. A bipartisan group of 16 senators has written to the Secretary of Defense urging the sale of Gray Eagle drones to Ukraine. The senators maintain that the provision of Gray Eagles will fundamentally change the direction of the conflict in Ukraine. Two people have been arrested in Sweden. We told you about that in the last hour. And they've been charged with espionage. One apparently for working for Russia and the other reportedly for working for Iran. That makes four people arrested by Swedish authorities this year and charged with espionage. And as we mentioned in the last hour with Kevin Gastala, Sweden is seeking to broaden its espionage law to include what looks like an official Secrets Act provision that would go after journalists and whistleblowers. New video is circulating that appears to show yet another group of Russian prisoners of war being executed by Ukrainians. There's been no mention of the executions by Western governments and no warning to the Ukrainians that they are committing war crimes. Saudi Arabia has executed 17 people in the past 12 days, according to Human Rights Watch. All 17 were accused of drug crimes. This brings to 144 the number of people executed by the Saudi government this year, including 47 for participating in pro-democracy demonstrations. We're joined by journalist and author Daniel Lazar. He's going to help us get to the bottom of some of these issues. Welcome back, Dan. Glad to be here, John. Let's 
let's start with uh, Serbia and Kosovo, yeah. where honestly, is it going to be license plates that are the tipping point for uh, actual violence again? Uh, it's it's hard to get all the details of this. So yeah. the, the conflict is Kosovo is attempting to finally ban Serbian issued license plates on cars of Kosovo residents. So I'm guessing they are registered in Kosovo. Uh, the license plates are more than license plates. Of course, they're described as a political statement, mm -hmm. a way for Kosovar Serbs to give a little middle finger to a state that they might not recognize. Um, Kosovo is saying, if you want to cross the border, you're going to have to cover your Serbian plate and get a Kosovo-issued plate, uh, which I understand Serbia has required for a while now, although that is one of those details that it's hard to get clarity on. Um, but... Basically, this has been simmering for a while. They've been trying to come to some agreement. And Kosovo is now saying, look, we are going to we are going to seize the vehicles of cars with these unacceptable plates. Uh, ethnic Serbs in Kosovo are upset. Earlier this month, 10 lawmakers, 10 prosecutors and nearly 600 Serb police officers resigned in a northern region of Kosovo. And yesterday, the leaders of Serbia and Kosovo met in Brussels with the EU High Representative for Security and Foreign Affairs. Uh, he concluded that meeting by saying Serbia had accepted his deal to smooth over this particular issue, but Kosovo had rejected it. Kosovo has said, look, why should we make a deal on license plates when the real issue is normalizing our relations? Right. And so I wonder, you know, are there... Are there little details here that we are missing that would make a, a difference to our understanding of this issue? And how serious is the potential for conflict? Well, <laughs> the, the, the potential for conflict is, is, is serious. Uh, it's unpredictable. We have no idea if it'll break out tomorrow, the week after, the year after, the decade after. These things are inherently unpredictable. Um, but I think it's worth keeping in mind that, the, uh, that, that NATO arbitrarily detached Kosovo from Serbia in a way that Serbia doesn't recognize. Now, whatever the justice or injustice of the act, and it can be argued back and forth, uh, the fact is that when Russia detached uh, Luhansk and Donetsk from the Ukraine under very similar circumstances, the West was, uh, was completely unambiguous in terms of its outrage. So, um, so, you know, so the West, you know, is, uh, you know, backs Albania for certain strategic reasons or Kosovo, I should say. And, you know, and you know, and opposes independence for Luhansk and Donetsk. I mean, it all strikes me as thoroughly hip arbitrary, capricious and and hypocritical. Um, so that's what has people upset. I mean, Kosovo was the Kosovo war was started by a. A, a right-wing, semi-fascist, ethnically intolerant, expansionist group called the Kosovo Liberation Army, whose head, Hashim Thachi, was a well-known gangster, drug smuggler, etc. Uh, but yet he was backed by the West. Um, and so, you know, the Serbs have a reason to be upset, but then the, the Kosov Kosovars have a reason to be upset, too, because of years of ill treatment mm -hmm. it's it's a mess but the point is the west attitude is just so hypocritical it's astonishing yeah i mean but the other thing is i mean i was i was pretty young 
during the the Balkan War. But the idea that anyone would want a, a repeat of that. Uh, is astonishing and that we are, you know, we are going to see this because uh, over how many decades we haven't been able to, no one has been able to create a relationship that that works in the long term is And may I add something damning. to that too? Yeah. I, I was serving in Greece at the time of the Balkan War and it, I, I can't, I can't explain enough how or clearly enough how that war affected American relations with other regional countries. Um, you know, the the Greeks, the Greeks are Orthodox Christians, as everybody who listens to me knows. The Serbs are Orthodox Christians, and Northern Kosovo is considered by Serbian Orthodox to be like Holy Land, right? That's where most of their monasteries are. Um, it's been Orthodox for more than a thousand years, and then Bill Clinton started bombing them, and NATO started bombing them, and then they took this land and gave it to these these Kosovars, most of whom are Muslims. And it just wrecked American relations with so many regional countries for so long. It took us 20 years to get over the damage that we did in that war. And so for this to happen again, where it it might even require then NATO require from the U.S. perspective, uh, NATO intervention, there's nothing good that can come out of this. Nothing. And bear in mind that NATO bombed Serbia for, what was it, 90 days? Yeah. I mean, it's a grueling punishment. They, those memories are still fresh in Serbia. And That's Serbia right. to this day is, a, is an ostracized state. Yes. Uh, you know, regularly vilified in the Western press, you know, and, uh, and um, you know, it's completely, as I said, hypocritical. I keep, I keep coming back to that, that term. Yeah. yeah. The, um, the. The 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 uh, the the reported uh, Serbian atrocities against the Kosovar Albanians were grossly exaggerated. Grossly, there was a survey that was done in two, the year two thousand, one year after the war ended, and there had been re- there had been reports of a hundred thousand casualties among the Kosovars. The survey was able to locate less than 3,000. That's an exaggeration of something, something on the order of 33 to 1. And yet William Cohn, who was the Secretary of State at the time under Bill Clinton, spoke, you know, quite casually of 100,000 deaths. And that was the justification for U.S. intervention. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and, and as, as you say, John, the, you know, the result is like, you know, it's a, it's a nightmare that's not going away. The potential for conflict is as great as ever. And and nationalism continues to surge. Yes. Yes, yeah. indeed. I have a question, but I, I, I don't know if it is even answerable or may, but I, you also have to think, I mean, uh, nations have reconciled after. Uh, violence and atrocities in the past, right? Mm-hmm. It, the United States has found it uh, itself capable of of reconciling with countries that it feels it has uh, done itself wrong, you know, uh, done us wrong. Like it, it, reconciliation is possible, and uh, I don't know. I don't want to say that you know everything is is always uh, the United States' fault or everybody else's sure. fault, but it does seem like if if it was a priority to create. A, a lasting peace and a lasting understanding. I don't know. Should we consider that it is simply impossible because of uh, religious and, and nationalist right. uh, fervor? Or is there something, you know what I mean? This is sort of always the, 
this is always what's sort of trotted out for the reason for as a reason for the perpetual conflict in in Israel. And again, you think I think it is more complicated than that. And I, I you know, I don't know that this is an answerable question, Dan, but I'm curious your thoughts on it. Well, no, I, I agree. There's no reason to be pessimistic, and 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 you know, and where there are different religions, it doesn't always mean that there's there's a an inevitable conflict. That simply is, you know, that, that's there's nothing preordained about that. Yeah. Um, you know, but you know, but 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 France and Germany, how many times did it go to war between the Napoleonic Wars and uh, and World War Two? I mean, I lost count. It was three times, four times, right? And eventually, after a century and a half, you know. You know, there was a reconciliation, and now France and Germany are the the backbone of right. uh, of the EU. Yeah. But still, it took a century and a half. Um, and uh, and people look back upon it now and think it's silly. There's no reason for Germans and 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 French to hate each other, but yet that that conflict seems somehow, you know, irreconcilable. Uh, and the same thing goes to uh, applies to the to the Balkans. I mean, you know, there's there's no intrinsic reason why those conflicts should be so so intense, but under current circumstances, they seem to be surging. And you know, and let's look at. And also, it was under the socialist republic of, of of Yugoslavia that those conflicts were tamped down. They weren't entirely eliminated, but they were tamped down, and to a great extent, they were forgotten. I mean, there were tons of Serbo-Croatian mixed marriages. Uh, you know, the people forgot the old boundary lines. They crossed them readily. And then suddenly in the late 80s, suddenly the old conflicts reasserted uh, themselves and the area became, you know, was, was plunged into, into bloodshed. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely true. Let's uh, return to Ukraine uh, quickly. I'm just curious your take on uh, this pressure the U.S. Congress is putting on the White House to send Gray Eagle drones to Ukraine. We have talked about this on the show before, and just today, 16 senators wrote to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin urging the administration to give Ukraine these drones, which can fly for more than 24 hours and have a greater range than anything they have right now. Uh, The senators are saying, in particular, these drones will help Ukraine attack Russian warships in the Black Sea, which I think probably doesn't bode well for this grain corridor that we are also also invested in. Um, The Biden administration so far has has said they don't want drone technology stolen on the battlefield. Uh, But it is also true that these drones are being presented as the latest bit of technology that we are being warned will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And we have heard this about other advanced weapons technology before. And eventually that technology gets sent to Ukraine and it doesn't turn into World War Three. So I, I wonder, you know, if you think it's any more likely uh, that, that these drones will be seen as an unacceptable provocation. Well, sure. Drones, um, these drones can stay aloft for 24 hours. Wow. And travel hundreds of miles and penetrate deep into Russia. Uh, and uh, since they have that capability, the temptation, you know, Grows and grows to you to, to to use them. Yeah. So uh, so yeah. So I think the Biden administration is uh, is 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 cautious. It doesn't want, you know it doesn't want this war spreading you know into neighboring countries. So so therefore it's saying no to these drones. And these senators, I think, are just like you know incredibly reckless. I mean, they they include Democrats like Tim Tim Kaine of Virginia, 
Mark Kelly of Arizona, who just beat Blake Masters. Um, uh, Joe Manchin is another one, our favorite. Yeah. And so, uh, so you know, it's just that this is just uh, this is just completely reckless. These people have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea how dangerous an expansion of, of the war would be. No, they don't. They don't. They don't have any appreciation for it at all. In, in the last hour, Dan, we spoke with Kevin Gastala about this new Swedish espionage law. The Swedes have a legitimate problem with people spying. They always have. You go back to the 60s and the 70s, and it was always the Soviets they were worried about. Uh, but this law that they're proposing is going to specifically target journalists and whistleblowers, just like the Official Secrets Act does in the UK. So my questions to you are, are twofold. First, does Sweden even need a toughened espionage law when they're prosecuting espionage cases as we speak? Um, and second, is this really just a backdoor to silence journalists and whistleblowers? That, that's the point of the new law in the first place? Well, I mean, I, I, I know that the, uh, the, the, the Sweden Democrats, the, the far right uh, party that got what twenty one percent of the vote. Right. It has it has it has genuine Nazi roots uh, roots. Um, I, I think this party is not is not officially in the government, but they are sort of like you know supporting the government from outside, mm -hmm. and therefore are highly influential inside the government. I am sure this uh, this new law reflects their influence. Uh, the Social Democrats have opposed it. They've called for the law to at least be uh, delayed. Um, and, uh, and the fact that, that Sweden is, is joining NATO means that they are abandoning uh, literally centuries of neutrality and now are <laughs> throwing themselves into the conflict. Mm -hmm. And I guess that, that plays into the hand of the Swedish Democrats uh, and the far right who want to push for a more author authoritarian uh, kind of you know, regime. Yeah, so uh, that's that's my assumption. I um, I uh, I think that seems to be um, a, a reasonable assumption. You know, it's funny to me. Well, first of all, I think you're right. Uh, secondly, it's funny to me. You know, still having relatives in in Greece and some in southern Italy, um, how the horrors of the Second World War, and specifically of the Holocaust and the German occupation. Um, have sort of just disappeared over, over the generations since the end of the war. And now you've got these Nazi or neo-Nazi parties in, in countries that took it on the chin from the Nazis, like Greece and Italy and Sweden and, and places where you would think, historically looking, that they would be the least likely to show up. But Dan, I, I think you're right. I think that, um, I think that there's pressure from the far right to do some of these things. <laughs> Excuse me. Well, also from bear in mind, by the way, bear in mind that Sweden was was neutral during World yeah, War II. Yeah, it was neutral. Yeah, and, uh, and it was a um, and it was a a happy hunting ground for for uh, for spies of all stripes. That's right. <laughs> Movies have been made about it. Yeah, movies have made about it. The uh, the, the the Danish underground had an office in the, in, in Stockholm. Uh, where they operated semi openly and played a game of cat and you know cat and mouse with the uh, with the uh, the the uh, Swedish political police, uh, 
Um, but also, since, uh, since Sweden was not part of the war, it actually had a very healthy uh, domestic Nazi movement, and there was no post-war denazification. Oh, very, yeah, you're as, right. That's a very good countries, point. Most notably Germany itself. And, uh, and so, therefore, these elements have, have continued. Uh, but, but, yeah, yeah, of course you're right. I mean, in Italy, I mean, Italy virtually fought a civil war. Yeah. In that's, 1944. That's really what it was. Yeah. And, uh, and now the other side, the bad guys, are in power, essentially. Yes. Uh, Greece, I mean, I mean, I think Greece suffered, I mean, had one of the, was one of the most devastated countries in yeah, the entire in fact, Greece, European theater. As a percentage of its population, Greece lost more of its Jewish population than any other country in the world. It's one of those little known facts. I, mean, yeah. I think well, I think of the I think the entire population the death rate was like uh, equal to about one in nine. Yes, I think it was. Uh, I mean, the country sustained incredible damage, and it also underwent a civil war. Yes, you know, that was that was sort of stopped midway and never really resolved. But you know, yeah, and, 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 and the you see it. Side is in power. Yeah, you yeah. see it in Greek society today. It it really never did end. It was because the the British and the and the Americans uh, intervened. So, yeah, you still see it today. I want to ask you about war crimes, Dan. Everybody knows the law in times of war. You can't harm or kill civilians. You can't kill prisoners of war. You have to treat them with respect. You have to allow access by the Red Cross, the Red Crescent, or, you know, associated organizations. But we're seeing credible reports of war crimes on both sides right now. Most recently, we've seen these videos of the executions of Russian soldiers uh, at the start of the conflict, we saw reports of of horrors that were being committed against uh, Russian uh, POWs. Why are people and governments not up in arms over this? I understand the whole fog of war thing. I've experienced it myself firsthand. But wrong is wrong. Well, there's only fog on one side. Also, well, that's right. It seems like. That's right. There's only fog on one side and wrong is wrong. I, I just don't understand why this is happening with no pushback. What are your thoughts? Well, there, well, there are there there's something called war crimes. But exactly. The, but but what we know about war crimes is that during war, war crimes are almost always ignored. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the way war seems to work. I mean, war is a suspension of of law and order. Yeah. So it's very difficult to impose law uh, in a, in a, a po- impose law on a war zone. Um, you know, uh, I mean, uh, I, the Allied terror bombings in Germany, which, as the you know, as the Allies freely admitted, they called them terror bombings, and they freely admitted that the uh, that the uh, that civilian population was the target, even though that is by any standard a war crime. Um, uh, uh, that a thin veneer of legality was imposed, and that military justifications were made up after the fact, but everyone knew. That the uh, goal was to was to terrorize and pulverize the civilian population into submission, and that's what yeah. happened. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you know, in the case of the Ukraine, uh, you know, uh, uh, soldiers are, are being given impunity to kill at will, um, and you know, and we you know, and we know that there's very heavy neo-Nazi influence in me- many of these military units, so. It's uh, it's very possible that 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 influence is showing itself uh, in the form of a kind of a you know a, 
a, an indiscriminate fascistic hatred of all things Russian. Yep. So, yep. That's what seems to be going on here. I think you're you're right about that too. The Saudis have been busy killing as many people as they possibly can. It seems they've beheaded 17 more people in just the past 12 days. And earlier this year, they killed 81 people in a single day. Um, some of those people were literally crucified. I did a, I did an op-ed on a, on a 16 year old who was crucified in the Eastern district, like on an actual cross, uh, for marching in a pro-democracy demonstration. Uh, we're talking about the death penalty here for drug offenses and for participating in peaceful demonstrations. Do you think there's any chance of any fallout from these executions, either internationally or domestically in Saudi Arabia? Because it seems to me like you can only kill so many people before you reach a tipping point, especially when you've got a restive Shia Muslim population that's concentrated in arguably the most important part of the country, the, the part where all the oil is. Yeah. Can you see something like that happening? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's again, it's unpredictable. Um, yeah, the situation with the, with, the, with the Shiite population of the eastern province to me is, I mean, the parallels uh, between the Shiite population in Bahrain mm -hmm. and the Palestinian population in Israel, I mean, they're, 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 the parallels are amazing. But yeah, the uh, that the uh, the Shiites are subject to uh, to Israeli style, style repression. Oh yeah, they're brutalized. Uh, protest demonstrations are crushed, uh, and um, and uh, capital uh, punishment is applied uh, indiscriminately, and even against children ages you know they're early you know, 10, you know 12, 13, 14 years old. And there's there's no justice. I mean, the, the 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 judicial system is a complete joke. Yeah. So so yeah. So these people are living in under terror, and they have no way out. Uh, and uh, but yet, uh, Saudi Arabia is an integral part of the Western economic system. Uh, we know how how uh, how the the Biden administration, after a lot of brave talk, tough talk, after the killing of a uh, Khashoggi you know, is now kowtowing once again to Mohammed bin Salman, yep. the all-powerful crown, crown prince. Um, and uh, yeah, and so, so, you know, so, so essentially the Saudis are locked in tighter than ever into the Western power structure. So that means that everybody looks the other way when, you know, when a few dozen people get their heads, heads chopped off um, as so that they can continue you know, buying oil and in exchange buying advanced armaments, which with the Saudis, you know, uh, then proceed to bomb uh, Yemen, the poorest country yeah. in the Middle East, right. where they have caused, you know, a, a, a major humanitarian catastrophe. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the mind reels. I mean, <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, under this, you know, in, under this, this U.S., you know, under this Pax Americana, there are so many atrocities going on that the press, the public, Congress tries to ignore. Everybody covers up and everybody, you know, just engages in maximal hypocritical displays. Uh, it's it's you know, it's just it's mind boggling. It really is. Do we have time for me to ask one more political sure. question before these last couple yeah. uh, on foreign affairs? 
uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene told uh, Steve Bannon on his show yesterday that Kevin McCarthy has promised her that she will be able to have hearings on Nancy Pelosi and what what Marjorie Taylor Greene is calling the murder of Ashley Babbitt. So we've already heard about hearings on uh, the border and hearings on uh, Joe Biden and Mayorkas and Anthony Fauci. And we've heard about uh, impeachment hearings and the Hunter Biden laptop. And now we're going to we're we're hearing about uh, Ashley Babbitt and January 6th. It seems to me if this is true, if this stuff is true, the Republicans already before before taking over the leadership of the House, they've gone off the rails. Yes, uh, they're totally. Okay. Do do you do you see anything good coming out of this for the Republicans? Is this I mean, do, does this stuff even bother to rally the base or are the Democrats, do you think, going to be able to say, look, we're the ones who are talking about and and working on the problems that the country faces? The Republicans are obsessed with Ashley Babbitt and Hunter Biden's laptop. I just don't see where this is going for the Republicans. I don't see what they get out of it. Well, the, you heard, of course, that the, the red wave failed to materialize. Yep. That, that, that phrase strikes you as a familiar. Oh, yes. Uh, it's, ac- it's actually untrue. Um, <laughs> in terms of the total House vote, uh, <laughs> Cook, the Cook's political report. Just, uh, uh, yes. Just, just yes, I know the, what you're going to say. According to the total vote, Republicans got 50.9% and Democrats got 476 That's a 3.5 million vote gap. And, it was yep. the worst and it's Democratic usually the reverse. That's true. Yes. It's the worst Democratic performance since 2014. So there wow. was a red wave. Wow. And ironically, because the, the Republicans are actually – are slightly underrepresented in terms of the allocation of House seats. Um, the effect is to bolster the leverage of the Freedom Caucus, the uh, the ultra rightists who come from from uh, from uh, hardcore Republican districts, of which Mar- you know Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene, ex- you know, is an exemplar. Um, so they, ha- they have more more leverage. So last year, if you recall, Marjorie Taylor Greene was stripped of all her committee assignments because she just made you know one crazy statement too many. I think her I think it was when she blamed the Jews or something. I forgot what it was. Maybe starting starting brush fires in California. Yes. But um, but now uh, it is widely acknowledged that she is the power behind the throne yeah. of Kevin McCarthy. Right. Crazy as that sounds. Crazy as that sounds. Mm-hmm. As, and so they, they, so the, the, some anti-Trump Republican uh, interviewed on MSNBC said that she will be running the Republican caucus. And if she is running the Republican caucus, then she is running the House. How? That's right. Extraordinary. Nuts. Yeah. How extraordinary. God. <laughs> Mortifying. As an American, that's embarrassing. Uh, I mean, so, so yeah, so Ashley Babbitt is the Babbitt will be the uh will be the um the, the new heroine of the day. We'll be, you know, be having a, a national holiday in her honor, probably. Oh, oh my god. god. And yeah, do, uh, nothing else important to to address no, no, no. also. No, no. Yeah. Nothing. Not a time of economic <laughs> and political crisis, certainly. 
Um, Dan, before we let you go, I do want to ask you a little bit about this uh, a gas drama and black markets in Europe. Uh, Russia is saying that it might cut off uh, supplies from one of the two remaining pipelines uh, that carries Russian gas to Europe. There's one that goes from U- through Ukraine. There's another that goes via Turkey. And Russia is saying that Ukraine is stealing gas from what it is sending through that pipeline to Moldova and onward and is threatening to shut it down. Um, that sent gas prices up, but not that much. Uh, Europe has been lucky enough to have a pretty mild fall so far and a mild uh, winter predicted, I think. And so, you know, the the concern is not quite as high as it was a bit before. But I I do wonder, one, you know, if Ukraine is doing this, if Ukraine is siphoning off Russian gas, does Europe complain either publicly or privately? Uh, If this is just an excuse for Russia to further throttle supply, you know, does Russia have enough buyers to count on to avoid shooting itself in the foot? Like how how much energy can it pull away from Europe before it struggles to replace that? And and what kind of black market for gas emerges in these contexts? Well, first of all, those those evil Russians, I mean, they're evil when they set when they sell gas yeah. via the Nord Stream pipeline. And then they're evil when they cut it off via the trans-Ukrainian pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, what does Europe want? Does it want gas or doesn't it want gas? Does yeah. it want Russia to sell them gas at reasonable prices? And if it does, what is what does the U.S. go around blowing up pipelines as we know it did with Nord Stream? So, uh, so, you know, so uh, and the story about Ukraine siphoning off gas, that was a, that's a complaint going back at least to 2007, 2008, when the uh, Russians accused them of, of, of doing that. And that, in fact, was one of the reasons why Russia decided to build Nord Stream in international waters, because they were tired of the of the Ukrainians stealing their gas. Hmm. So, uh, so, you know. So 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 Russia is guilty regardless of what it does that what it does whether it sells gas or doesn't sell gas it's they're still evil um, so uh, so so yeah I mean I mean I think European policy is deeply confused and I think that the um, that uh, that the any cutoff of, of natural gas will first of all drive up prices number one and number two will create market openings for other suppliers uh, you know. U.S., Kuwait, et cetera. Should we be worried about a a really robust black market in energy forming around Europe? And then, you know, should we be worried about uh, violence associated with that black market? Because you can't, you know, invoke legal support. So if you want to protect, you know, violence is the sort of recourse you have to protect the that you know, high dollar uh, illegal market you've set up. Are, are these two worries that are kind of going um, a little bit, I guess, un, unconsidered right now? Well, I, I guess a black market to me doesn't make much sense because, first of all, number one, I, I don't know how you can have a black market when you have gas that has to be transported in pipelines. Um, and if it's not transported in pipelines, it's, it's liquefied and then transported, which is highly expensive and requires very advanced equipment. So it's not so it's not some guy in a street corner with a can of gasoline, you know, whispering to passersby, you know, to come and buy some gas. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But the other thing is that, you know, is that, is that when when uh, when prices are rising, uh, it doesn't make much sense to have a black market because. 
ordinary above board suppliers can make tons of money. Um, so therefore, if, if, if Russia does cut off these other pipelines, then I think that, uh, that, that other countries will very happily st- step in and will reap a premium uh, caused by, by the, uh, the Russia's escalation, essentially its escalation of gas prices. Um, so I don't see a problem with a, with a black market it, within that regard. I see a thousand other problems, but I don't see that problem. Okay, well, we'll leave the thousand other problems, I think, for another show because we've got to move on here. But that was Dan Lazar. Dan, always great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break here and come back to talk about uh, Ron DeSantis and Gitmo, which I'm pretty excited about. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatments. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. We have a a renowned uh, anti-war activist, whistleblower, Iraq War veteran, and friend of the show uh, who's going to join us now. He's also the host of the podcast Eyes Left, which I highly, highly recommend to people. Uh, this is Mike Preisner. We're very glad to have him uh, with us. It's been a long time. Mike, you uh, you address some issues on your podcast, Eyes Left, that literally nobody else is talking about. And that's one of the reasons why I, I enjoy it so much. So first of all, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to, good to have you back. Um, I want to ask you about a recent episode of your podcast. You talked about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and you talked about things in DeSantis's not so terribly distant past that virtually no American knows about. Ron DeSantis was a member of the Judge Advocate General Corps uh, in the military, and his job ostensibly was to ensure the human rights of detainees at Guantanamo. Just the, the notion of it is laughable to me. In fact, he did exactly the opposite of, uh, of ensuring those human rights. You say in the podcast that DeSantis actually um, ordered the torture of one prisoner. He watched the torture session. Well, if he didn't order it, he allowed it to go forward. He watched the torture session and then laughed as the man screamed out in pain. This prisoner was a Yemeni national by the name of Mansour Adefi. Uh, tell us about that experience and about what Adefi went through. Yeah, well, first of all, I became interested in this story because, you know, I was looking into Ron DeSantis's military background, mm-hmm. which isn't exactly uh, fully a background because I believe he's actually still in the Navy, which is another thing that is uh, a little bit shadowy. But, you know, we know that he served at Guantanamo Bay, and the only reporting out there on this is really just taking the official statement at face value. If you look up, you know, what did Ron DeSantis do at Guantanamo Bay? It's all from official records and official Navy spokespeople and former office and officers that he served with at Guantanamo who say Ron DeSantis's job as a JAG lawyer 
was to, quote, ensure the human rights of detainees uh, and to ensure the U.S. was in compliance with international law. Now, Rhonda Santos was at Guantanamo Bay in the year 2006, which was the height of the Bush torture program, uh, if not the worst year Mm -hmm. ever for human rights at Guantanamo. And to see all these different you know, uh, local and national media outlets just report that, yes, Ron DeSantis was there ensuring human rights of detainees when we know for a fact that, you know, even in 2006, the United Nations uh, Human Rights Board ruled that Guantanamo Bay needed to be closed because it was in complete violation of international law. So just the fact that it wasn't even questioned for the amount of time that DeSantis has been in the national spotlight was a little uh, concerning to me. And so I I tracked down someone who was a detainee at the time Ron DeSantis was there. And wow. uh, the Mansoura Dafi, you mentioned his name, you know, a totally innocent teenager who was one of many, many uh, uh, innocent people who were just rounded up by Afghan and Pakistani warlords and sold to the CIA. Um, but, you know, his description, uh, he, DeSantis was not just a human rights lawyer who was there. Uh, he was someone who was uh, observing torture, in particular the program of force feeding. You know, when there is the massive yes. hunger strike among detainees protesting the the torture and the conditions and all that, you know, they embarked on a really brutal force feeding program where five times a day you'd be strapped to a chair, you'd have, you know, 10 cans of Ensure uh, pumped through a giant feeding tube that was stuck through your nose with a metal right. spike at the end. Um, they'd be screaming, defecating themselves because there's laxative in the insurer, vomiting. And uh, Mansoor, you know, says that Ron DeSantis was observing these, observed him and was smiling and laughing uh, when Mansoor was was defecating himself and screaming and crying during this torture. Uh, and so, you know, that's the that's the one personal anecdote. But also, the, I think the important thing that he revealed was that when Ron DeSantis first got to Guantanamo and there was not a human rights lawyer there prior to him, this was a position that they created because there was a massive hunger strike and protests at the prison, which they saw as like an act of jihad or something against America. So they brought in DeSantis, they brought in all these other officers to break the hunger strike. And Ron DeSantis's job was to go into the prisoners and say, hey, I know that you're upset, you're protesting, I'm here to hear your concerns and ensure that your human rights are respected. And so initially he had the trust of the detainees who confided in him, these are our demands, these are the things, you know, the the sleep deprivation, the, you know, the the putting, uh, mixing our food with meat so that we can't eat it because it's not halal and uh, desecrating the Quran and all of the things that they told DeSantis as, you know, ostensibly the person who was there to look out for their human rights. Uh, they claim that DeSantis then went and made sure, reported that to the prison officials and interrogators, and then intensified the human rights violations. The particular human rights violations that they told DeSantis were the hardest to deal with. And so he was there really uh, as an undercover agent, you know, pretending to be the person who was there to respect their human rights when instead he just, you know, turned them against them. And there was no fallout. Well, uh, clearly there was no fallout for DeSantis, but there was no fallout for anybody else uh, after after, you know, the public disclosure of of the torture program, after the publication of the executive summary of the Senate torture report, nobody ever paid a price for torturing Mensora Dafi or anybody else at Guantanamo, did they? 
No. Um, and, you know, this this was once a big issue. I mean, if people can think back to the 2007, 2008 election, I mean, one of the reasons Obama was propelled to the top of the primary was he was the strongest against torture yeah. and promised to close Guantanamo Bay. And when elected, he did uh, didn't close Guantanamo, but did was pressured to pass bans on waterboarding and, and other forms of torture at Guantanamo. And so this was a scandal in the United States, you know, up until Obama was elected and then uh, many people forgot about it. But yes, I mean, this was uh, huge. Uh, the human rights violations are very well documented, uh, recognized as incomplete violation with international law. And right, nobody nobody paid the price. And, you know, some people could argue that DeSantis was just like a low level person in this game, but uh, not exactly. I mean, it would yeah. be bad if DeSantis had done these things as an interrogator, as a guard, Yes, that would still be bad. But the fact that his official job was the human rights attorney to ensure that the that uh, the United States was in compliance with international law when he, in fact, observed and covered up the worst forms of torture that are obvious to anyone and including DeSantis as an attorney in complete violation with uh, Geneva Convention and other international laws. You know, uh, DeSantis right now is is such a golden boy for the Republican Party, mm-hmm. at least in this this brief, you know, current period of time. He's the one that's supposed to save the Republicans from themselves or save them from Donald Trump. Do you think that um, that as Americans learn more about his history, uh, you know, he's lied over the years about having been a Navy SEAL, for example. He was never a Navy SEAL. He's just a lawyer. Do you think that uh, this is going to have some sort of effect on um, on him, on, on a possible presidential campaign, on the way Republicans look at him? You know, the SEAL piece is interesting because, you know, while he was not a Navy SEAL, he was the uh, legal advisor to the SEAL Correct. commander at the worst time of the Iraq war in one of the, the hotbeds of the resistance in Fallujah. It's 2007. And it's interesting that after the role he played at Guantanamo Bay, you know, obviously there, the, the his superiors there were happy with the job he did of not only being compliant, but aiding and covering up the widespread torture that was there. He was sent straight to Iraq from that assignment at Guantanamo wow. Bay to do the same job for the top special operations commander in Fallujah during the troop surge. And so you have to wonder, you know, we don't know exactly what he did in Iraq, but his job was the same to ensure that the U.S. complied with international law for both the raids and missions that they were doing, combat operations, and for the rights of detainees that they were capturing. And so you have to wonder if uh, after what we know he did at Guantanamo, why did that earn him the assignment to go do the same thing in Iraq for special forces? And what did he actually do there? And so I I think that there are some major implications of his role in Iraq, um, you know, whether or not, you know, obviously. Obviously, he wasn't on the ground doing anything, but he was the legal cover for those very shady units. Um, But will it impact him? I mean, I think the response to our story uh, is interesting because obviously there's a section of the Republican base that uh, does that likes it and makes it like him more. Um, There's that section of Republicans who don't like Trump, not for his politics, obviously, because they like DeSantis, who has pretty much the same exact yeah. politics, but their concern yeah. is the image that he presents as a stable and compliant person and respects the peaceful transition of power and all that stuff. So they won't care. But, you know, there is a section of people, I've noticed some like more libertarian types who said, you know, I, I liked DeSantis, but now I can't accept him. And so there will be, I think it can, this story can peel away uh, of some of his support. But I think the issue is, is that 
I don't expect this story to even get much coverage. I mean, the it is, I think, a fairly scandalous and big revelation. But, uh, you I know, the, the mass media has kind of given up on torture as, as an issue. Yeah. I, I hate to say it, but I think you're right. And, uh, and shame on them for doing it. It's up to the rest of us to keep it in the news. Mike Preisner, thanks so much for joining us. Mike is an anti-war activist and Iraq war veteran, and he's the host of the podcast Eyes Left. Don't miss it. We're going to take one more short break. Before we come back, you're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I am here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We've got a few last headlines for you. Man, I've been trying to find a sort of concise update uh, to what we've been learning about FTX during yeah. its uh, bankruptcy, its first bankruptcy hearing today. Um was something that has come out as an, I mean, okay, this is too much to like put coherently, but it does appear that FTX has more cash on hand than uh, previously thought. According to what people heard in court today, they have $1.2 billion in, in cash, cash on hand, which is a lot. Yeah. Uh, it is still way, way short of covering uh, its customers' deposits. Oof. So that is a lot of money, but they're still <laughs> really short. There's been uh, a lot of discussion of you know, multi-million dollar properties in mm-hmm. the Bahamas, Miami. whether the founders' uh, parents, you know, what, whether yep. those properties were paid for by FTX for the yep. founders' parents. Um, this sort of looting of FTX at the same time it was announcing bankruptcy. So uh, this is my, this is my new favorite saga. <laughs> I just, uh, I had, I just lost a thread by a financial reporter who had been talking about everything that was weird. Oh, I remember. This was this was actually from a few days ago. Uh, they were going through court filings detailing, you know, everyone has heard that quote that the guy who came in to fix Enron after it's collapsed has said FTX is like nothing I've ever seen before. This is the worst thing. Um, I don't know if we discussed details like uh, they the company never had didn't have a board and never had board meetings. What? Yeah. This is a multi-billion dollar company. Yeah, didn't have about. a board, never had board meetings. Uh, there is evidence of employees, you know, submitting expense reports uh, via like messenger and then having things uh, yayed or nayed with uh, thumbs up or thumbs down emojis. Maybe mm-hmm. not those, but, but an emoji. So there's no documentation of any of this and you're collecting huge sums of money. And also, again, on the topic wow. of not having a board. Yeah. Nobody, wow. nobody who thought, yeah, I'm going to put a, a bunch of money in there. Yeah. Uh, is it weird that they don't have even the most basic sort of financial, legal, and ethical infrastructure in place? Nah, it's fine. It'll be fine. Just yeah. crazy. No I'm, I'm at the all. World Economic Forum, and I guess I don't care that this company, again, doesn't have a board. I, it is weird. It is very strange. Either people just got really excited about it, and lost their damn minds. I can't tell you how many times something else. I've gone to a company's website and, you know, there's always a tab like who we are 
And then there will be a sub tab that says our team or our leadership or whatever. Yeah. I always look to see who's on the board because usually you'll recognize at least some of the names. And if they're people that you respect, then, okay, maybe it's worth doing business with this company. Yeah. But to not have a board, how did, how did the SEC even let them get away with something like that? I mean, I think it's because, they, like, he was also interacting with the people who are crafting the regulations right. that are going to govern right. crypto and, and companies like this, right? Yes. He was the sort of pro-regulation crypto dude, the legit guy. So perhaps that's that's part of why. Yeah, I'm, I found this thread. I mean, it is just uh, they're they're just sloshing money around between these two companies. They didn't even have proper records of who they employed. Employees and contractors are sort of mingled through different companies without any accounts of how they spent their time. I mean, you know, we could talk about this crazy for, for an hour. I, but again, what is not. I, I just feel like I have to stress it. I guess it's not surprising that companies have sloppy business practices you know everybody who's got a hamburger stand right you, right. you could go you could find this at any small yeah. business mm -hmm. this this company and this person were elevated to you you couldn't get higher when you get higher than davos you know what i mean mm -hmm. hanging out on a stage with with ex-presidents that's right being like a, a major funder of the Democratic Party, saying you're going to fund, a, a, you know, put a billion dollars into the midterms. You know what I mean? That's so right. So there was no scrutiny. Yeah. Anyway, I've got one for you, please. A woman in Alabama was arrested uh, last week for endangering her fetus. Oh, no. By taking drugs. <gasps> yes. She was held in in a jail in uh, Etowah County. Uh, Alabama, and uh, has been held without bail since her arrest. Well, guess what? She was never pregnant in the first place. What? They just scooped her off the street. Um, they forced her to take a pregnancy test in the jail. They arrested her on a drug charge. Okay. Forced her to take a pregnancy test. It came up with a false positive. And she kept saying, I'm telling you, I'm not pregnant. And they said, well, the test says something different. I mean, and also, sorry, just in light of our previous conversation, anyone believe the best place for a pregnant woman to be is in jail? In jail? I mean, exactly. she's there for her own well-being. Oh, not her well-being, of course, the well-being of her fetus. This isn't, I mean, this is an outrageous yeah. uh, slide to begin to go down. And this isn't the first, right? We've talked oh, about this no, on the no, show no. before. This about happens. Uh, Yeah. People, yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Being treated, you know, we we actually covered the case of a woman who was arrested. She had like four children, right? And she had chronic back pain, mm -hmm. and she was taking painkillers under the supervision of her doctor mm -hmm. while she was pregnant with like her her fourth child, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, the authorities came in and were like, "No, no, no, you're endangering." Yeah, we're going to take all your kids. Yeah, there, I mean, there was a woman. It's a, outrageous. A, a good friend of mine sent me an article a couple of days ago about a woman in um, in Los Angeles who uh, was in prison. Um, she, when she went to prison, she was several months pregnant. She delivered the baby in a hospital while literally chained to the bed. They allowed her to hold the baby for 45 minutes. Yeah. And then it was taken from her. And because her sentence is so long and she doesn't have family that can take the baby, it was put out for adoption. Mm-hmm. Absolutely awful. Yeah. Just terrible. 
Um, let's see other awful headlines, man. I mean, we do have some fun ones, but we should probably, boy, the death toll in that Indonesia earthquake has almost doubled from what it was yeah. yesterday, nearly 270. They're lot. still looking for people. Um, again, what can you, what can you say about it other than say we, you know, you, you keep an eye on it. It's, uh, it's just horrifying. It really is. Yeah. Sorry for bringing that down. Hey, do you want a fun one though? Yeah, let's do fun. One. I mean, this, I think it's, this is a like sort of a uh, silly nerdy thing. Um, I don't know if you know that it's sort of a right-wing fixation in Hungary that Hungary should be three times bigger. Greater Hungary. Greater Hungary. Yeah. Yep. It's pretty funny. So uh, Viktor Orban, uh, a darling of the American right, uh, is in trouble because he was wearing a football scarf that featured the shape of Greater Hungary. <laughs> right? Uh, and so Orban, when this was brought to his attention... Uh, he said, no, 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 look, football isn't politics. You, you, you shouldn't see what isn't there. But also said Hungary's national team belongs to all Hungarians, regardless of where they live. Mm-hmm. It is pretty funny. So, yeah, bitter, bitter since 1920. Uh, I've got another one for you. Please. Let's see. Yeah, I only need a minute. All right. Um, there's something of a kerfuffle here in Washington over the the uh, wedding over the weekend at the White House oh, of Naomi Biden. I have seen some of this. Have you seen this? Mm-hmm. Uh, they said that um, they were denying access to the wedding by the entire Washington uh, press corps. And uh, a whole bunch of reporters asked for permission to go just to take pictures. And they said, no, it's private. It's private. private. It's We're private. Not- it's private. What they didn't tell anybody is that they had already uh, reached a private deal with Vogue. Yeah. And Vogue did it so that they could put the whole spread on the cover and the front of the magazine. There is a there is journalism drama happening uh, around this because, you know, some of the reporters have said I saw one reporter saying like, you know, all administrations lie. The but you know, Trump was really obvious about it. The it's, Biden it's administration Ashley is Parker too cute by that. half. Yes. Yeah. Ashley Parker from the Post. And other people going like, Yeah, this is a they lied they lied to us. They lied to us about this wedding. And other people going, <laughs> This is what you care about? Like, Seriously. This is what I mean This I is what they're reporting on. I will say though, I mean at least it gets someone to say the administration's <laughs> lying to you or at least uh, look out for that to be a possibility. I will say that that's good. I don't particularly care who got photographs of no. the wedding. But I don't think it's like, I don't think it is utterly meaningless for the administration to lie about something like, like this. Yeah. You know, right. I, there are other things that are much more important. Well, but can but you I see don't, a downside to just saying, look, we we are we working with one outlet with Vogue. So sorry. I don't know. Maybe yeah. there's a maybe there's a legal issue. I have no idea. Uh, I, I so honestly crazy. don't, but it is, it is funny. And now they're, uh, they're going after each other or, uh, are you being too mean or not mean enough to the administration over wedding gates? Fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Hey man, we still have a lot to get to, uh, tomorrow. So we'll, we'll leave it there. Yeah, Tomorrow's going to be the last show of the week. So <coughs> we're going to have a lot of, uh, a lot of things to talk about. Yeah, John's going to go coughing into uh, the into the holiday. Straight back to the doctor for the fourth time. <laughs> Aww. Thanks to everybody for listening. On behalf of John Kiriakou <laughs> and myself, Michelle Woody, we will talk to you tomorrow. See ya. <laughs>